Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, my friends, today is the last day of our sermon series, Turn the Page. Next week, we move into Lent and we turn the page on turning the page, but we got one last turn the page message for our sermon series as we've been journeying together essentially through the Gospel of Mark. And we've been in the beginning of the Gospel a lot, but today we fast forward to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. What does the transfiguration of Jesus Christ say to us about turning the page? Now, I've preached the transfiguration of Jesus many times, and each time I sort of see something new. And one thing that kind of struck me was the way I've often heard the story of the transfiguration portrayed. That sometimes certain emphases in the story, well, maybe they get pushed to an extreme. It often goes something like this. We just read the story, right? Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the twelve, the disciples go up the mountain, the inner three, Peter, James, and John with Jesus. And Jesus is transfigured before them, right? Super bright, dazzling white, glorious light. Mark 9 verse 3 says his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Not only that, but some super important pillars of the Old Testament show up. Verse 4, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now, I've always wondered what were they talking about, and I guess that one day we will know. Then Peter speaks. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, it's at this point that the transfiguration sermon often glances judgingly, maybe disdainfully, upon Peter. I've done it before many times. I'm guilty. You know, it goes something like this. There's Peter. Once again, Peter is getting Jesus wrong. There's Peter speaking before thinking. We sort of criticize Peter for wanting to pause and to hold on to this awesome, glorious, spiritual, mountaintop experience. And from this point, we might make the move and say that we can learn from Peter's supposedly foolish suggestion that discipleship isn't all about basking in the glory of the mountaintop experiences, but real discipleship, true gritty discipleship, is about going back down the mountain, getting into the valley, into the messy reality of daily life. And we could probably spend a whole lot of time on what we actually think going down into the valley should look like and then probably see how we fall short in many ways. And then in that vein, we often take the next step from Peter's foolish thinking, and then we focus the transfiguration sermon on Peter, how we're like Peter, and how often we speak before we think, or how we might say we're going to do something for God, but then we don't have the courage to do it. I will never deny you, Jesus. And then the rooster crows. We often preach the text in this way. And make this connection with Peter. And that we, like Peter, often are foolish, imperfect followers who fail as often as we succeed. And yet Jesus builds the church on Peter on us. It's how we look at the text. Get off the mountain. Get back in the valley. Get in the game, into the messy reality. And along with that, look at Peter. You're like him. Now, 
those interpretations aren't necessarily wrong, but sometimes they're pushed. They're pushed as the only way, or they're pushed to an extreme that might not be the best. And when pushed to the extreme, it almost starts to seem like the mountain is bad, but the valley is good. But I don't know if that resonates with the big picture of what God is doing in the world. If we think the transfiguration is just about Peter being thick-headed or foolish, does that match the text? Is it really about Peter? Because you see, sometimes when we look at the Bible, we get into this either-or mentality. It's either this or it's that. It can't be yes and no because that doesn't make sense. It can't be positive and negative because, well, that's illogical. It can't be up and down because that's contradictory. But if we pause on that sort of thinking and transfigure our understanding of the transfiguration, perhaps the idea of paradox can come into play here. In fact, I recently took something called the Harrison Assessment, which talks about paradox. And they write this. They say, a paradox is two ideas, and I would add realities, that may appear contradictory but are in fact both true. For example, sometimes less is more seems contradictory, but most people have experienced that fewer words can sometimes communicate more effectively. I'll keep that in mind for next week's sermon. But to bring it down to maybe a more simpler Pastor Michael sort of term, it's kind of like sweet and salty, right? I remember when I was a youth pastor, someone brought a bunch of uh, chocolate-covered pretzels to youth night. It was decades ago, right? Long before this paradox was embraced and commercialized, sweet and salty. They seemed like they shouldn't go together. But when we tried them, we realized. I remember one kid in the youth group going, this is not right. This is not right, Mike. But I can't stop eating them. They're so good. It's like when they came out with uh, salted caramel ice cream. It didn't make sense at first, but when you experienced it, you realized that this is a paradox, and this paradox works. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. The reality of paradox teaches us that sometimes we got to turn the page from either or thinking to both and thinking. Turn the page from less or more to less is more. Turn the page from sweet or salty to both sweet and salty because paradox works. Well, maybe we can apply that to the transfiguration. You see, we often get all judgy against Peter when he says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Well, the interesting thing about it is why are we getting all judgmental? If what he said is actually wrong, why doesn't Jesus challenge him? Why doesn't Jesus rebuke him and say, no, it's not good for us to be here. What are you looking at, Peter? Get back down the mountain. I mean, if you think about it, right, Jesus is the one who took Peter, James, and John up the mountain, right? If Peter was wrong, why didn't Jesus say, Peter, it's not about mountaintop experiences. The Son of Man came to serve. Get back down in the valley, Peter. I mean, Jesus isn't afraid to call Peter out, right? I mean, just in Mark chapter 8, a few verses earlier, Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
In fact, I believe that this is one of only a few places, if not the only place, where Jesus doesn't respond to someone when they say something to him. And what if Jesus doesn't respond because, for the most part, Peter is right? Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. You see, sometimes we anthropomorphize the scripture or God and we make it more about us than about God. I have this problem. In fact, if Peter were around to listen to some of our preaching on this text, myself included here, he might be like, Michael, don't make me the main point of this sermon because if you make me the main point, Michael, you're making you the main point. Ouch. Remember, tradition has it that Peter was crucified for his faith, but he insisted that he be crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. Peter would be like, don't look at me in this text. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who is shining bright. Maybe Peter gets it right. That gazing upon Christ, Christ who is the light of the world, Christ who created light, looking and gazing upon him at his glorious light, this is good. And my friends, maybe more than good, maybe to look upon Christ in all his glory, to experience Christ, true God, true man, this is at the core of discipleship. It's at the core of our identity as children of God. It's at the core of following Jesus. It's at the core of our very existence. It's at the core of every breath we take and every move we make to look upon the glory of Jesus. In fact, when Peter looks up and sees the glorious, transfigured Christ, he sees the humanity of Jesus fused with the eternal glory of God, and Peter gets a chance to witness more intensely something that not one of us have ever experienced, one of the greatest mysteries of the faith, that God became human, that Jesus is God. And the light that pulses that light that pulses from Jesus on the mountain is the same light that said, let there be light in the beginning, the source of all light. It's the very light that those who struggle with darkness in the world long for and yearn for. It's the light that will one day illumine the new creation when there will be no sun or moon, but only Jesus, the uncreated light. Peter, James, and John, right? John was up there on the mountain. And John would later write about this light in the new creation, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, John says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. This is the glorious light that Peter, James, and John are beholding in Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord. Upon this mount of transfiguration. In fact, so profound was the moment that later Peter wrote about it. He said in 2 Peter chapter 1, he said, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on this sacred mountain. So maybe Peter is right. It is good for us to be here. Maybe we all need a little more light and a little more glory and a little more mountaintop right now. I know many of you have come to me struggling down in the valley. And some of you, you don't know if you can drudge through the valley anymore. Death, sickness, depression, family problems, financial struggles, work problems, relationship problems, the broken darkness of life in the valley. I know sometimes the church will say, press on, you can do it, it's messy, it's just life in the valley. But perhaps the idea of paradox could help us here. Perhaps the lower that we go into the valley, the higher up the mountain we need to go. We need to go higher in order to go lower. We need to get high up on the sacred mountain of glory in order to drudge through the low valley of suffering. If we're going to survive and thrive down in the valley, we've got to spend time up on the mountain with Jesus and all his glory and all his light and all his love and all his strength and all his might and all his compassion and all his truth just to behold him and to be with him. We've got to turn the page from either or to both and. It's not the mountain or the valley. It's both the mountain and the valley. And my friends, that's what Jesus did. He came down from the highest heights, higher than any mountain. He traveled down to the lowest depths, lower than any valley, to the depths of the suffering on, cro on the cross, and then back up hot to the heights of the right hand of the Father, and then sent his spirit back down to us into the valley. Jesus, who is the highest, he went the lowest for us so that we could be lifted up and experience his glory. It is good for us to be here, period. Pause. Let's not get too eager to get down the mountain. It is good for us to be here. I know many of you, my friends, you need some mountain time. You need to get up to the bright light of the mountain of glory. And I'm giving you permission to get out of the valley. You got to go higher if you're going to go lower. And you might be wondering, well, how? How do I do that? That's a good question. You, question you got to figure out your entire walk with Jesus all your days. But I'd say that you're doing it right now. When you worship, that's going up the mountain. When you dedicate daily time to prayer and the word, that's going up the mountain. When you carve out time to be with God's people, that's going up the mountain. When you receive the Lord's Supper, that's going up the mountain. When you're baptized, that's going up the mountain. When you rest and you talk with God in Sabbath, that's going up the mountain. When you stare and you think and you contemplate upon the eternal light that is Jesus Christ and you confess before everyone that it is good for us to be here. That is going up the mountain. Getting up there. 
Get up there. Get with Jesus. Gaze upon his light and who he is. The almighty eternal son of God who endured the valley of humanity on the cross for you and for your glory. It's the only way you can really live in the valley. The higher you go with Jesus, the lower you can go with him in the valley. And so let's turn the page from either or to both and. Both the mountain and the valley. It is good for us to be here. Amen.